I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A predator who saw a nice car and what he thought were easy targets stalked this family to their home. After police were notified, would they be able to arrive in time or would it all turn to ashes? This is the Pettit family story. Hey, Megan. Hey, Amy. How are you? Um, I'm doing great. You've heard of this case? I have. I know there's a documentary on it. But um, you would never have watched it before my episode, would you? And that's exactly why I didn't watch it. I was waiting for you to do the episode, but I can't wait. Because oh. when, when you cover these cases and I wait, like as soon as you're done, I go out and watch them. So yes. And this case is one that has been suggested by some of our supporters. And it's always been on my list. So I moved it up because I've always been fascinated with this case. I know. And I saw it come in from multiple people who requested it. So I'm excited. And I want to thank Danielle Kobaswaki for her help with today's research. Thank you, Danielle. And speaking of thanks, we have some supporters we'd like to give thanks to today as well. All right. Who do we have today? Okay, first we have Rita Riccio. We also have Brenna Slane. And next we have Elisa, Laureen Hausman, and Drulana Sutton. This is really cute. We have Scott Cassing, and he wants to have a birthday shout out. Happy birthday to Scott's mom, Diane. How sweet is that, Megan? That's really sweet, I think, actually. Your son, Scott, is such a sweetheart. And thank you all so much for your support. Thanks so much for your support. It means the world to us. And if you are interested in receiving an extra episode a month, check out our $5 and above tier on Patreon. All right. And now let's get into today's episode. William Pettit met Jennifer Hawk when they were both working at a children's hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, he was a third year medical student. He was doing his residency and she was a pediatric nurse there. Now, Jennifer was very well liked and popular described as a beautiful person both inside and out. She was the type that would be the lead in the school play. She was on the homecoming court. And then there's William Pettit, often called Bill or Billy by friends and family. He was a well-known doctor in the field who focused his time on diabetes. Family members would say Bill is very dedicated, very devoted. He would often put in very long hours at work. He was also an avid basketball player and took up golfing that he would often do with his father on the weekends. Now, Bill and Jennifer got married soon after meeting, and they moved to Cheshire, Connecticut. Megan, do you know anything about this area? I do. I had a friend from college who lived or came from Cheshire, so I know a little bit. I know it's a pretty upscale neighborhood. Yes, it's a very upscale, beautiful neighborhood. 
And in 2020, it was actually named one of the best places to live in the U.S., ranked by Money Magazine, placing 28th in the whole nation. The couple had their first daughter, Haley, in 1989, and then their second daughter, Michaela, was born just six years later in 1995. Sometime between the two births, Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. At the time of the events that we're discussing today, Jennifer was 48 years old, her oldest daughter, Haley, was 17, and Michaela was 11. Now, Haley was all around high achieving. She had just graduated high school. She was planning to attend Dartmouth that fall, following in her father's footsteps, who also went to that school, and she was planning on studying science with the hopes of going to medical school like her father as well. She was described as a great athlete. She got straight A's. She was very involved in the community and very philanthropic. After her mother was diagnosed with MS, she raised almost $50,000 for the MS Society in Connecticut. That's impressive. Yeah. Someone in high school who's in sports and getting straight A's and still having time to do this. She was described as really humble, kind of quiet, and, you know, just doing a lot of good. And then Michaela, who again was 11, she was like her sister. She was incredibly kind, described as shy at times, but she too excelled in school and she absolutely loved cooking. And her family would call her KK. That was her nickname. That's cute. Isn't that cute? Sunday, June 22nd, 2007, started as a normal day for the Pettit family. They attended church in the morning, and then Bill went to play golf while Jennifer and the girls went to the beach. Later that evening, Jennifer and her youngest daughter, Michaela, went to the local Stop and Shop grocery store to get some ingredients for that evening's dinner. Also at the store was Joshua Komisarjewski, a 26-year-old Cheshire resident who had recently been released from prison after serving only five years of a nine-year sentence for burglary. Now, he was at the store meeting a contractor who owed him some money. He noticed the pair and said that it was their nice car that caught his attention, and he decided he would follow them home. At this point, he noticed that they also live in a beautiful house. Doesn't sound good. Mm -mm. After following the two to their home, he began texting with his friend, Stephen Hayes, who was almost 20 years his senior. Now, Hayes had a long rap sheet. He was convicted as an adult for the first time at the age of 16 and arrested nearly 30 times between then and 2007 and spent most of his life in and out of prison. So he's a career criminal. He is definitely a perfect example of a career criminal. Mm -hmm. He was also recently paroled about a year earlier after serving time for a burglary. He met Komisar Jeski at a halfway house where they both had gone after their release, and they both left the halfway house about two months prior to this. Commissar Jeske and Hayes were texting back and forth about the idea of burglarizing the Pettit household. The messages are chilling, Megan. You can see them online. So to start, Stephen Hayes sent a message to Commissar Jeske that read, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. After which he didn't get a reply. About an hour later, he texted, are we still on? Komisar Jeske replied, yes, I'm just putting the kids to bed. Hold your horses. To which Hayes replied, dude, the horses want to get loose. L-O-L. So Komisar Jeske has a five-year-old daughter. He's putting to sleep before he goes to meet up with his buddy. Planning a felony while... Putting yes. your child to sleep. Exactly. The two met up and went to a bar to discuss their plan. Meanwhile, the Pettit family enjoyed a nice family dinner. And then the girls in the family watched some TV and Bill decided to read the paper. The three girls retired for the evening around 11 p.m. And Bill had fallen asleep on the couch in their sunroom. Jennifer and Michaela went to read in the master bedroom while Haley went to her own room. So the little girl sometimes would sleep with the mother. Around 3 a.m., the two men went to the Pettit house and found the storm door unlocked. They put on face masks and gloves, and they soon spotted Dr. Pettit asleep downstairs on the couch. While he was asleep, he was beaten over the head by Komisar Jeske with a baseball bat. And this was his own baseball bat that the intruders found in his backyard. Dr. Pettit was severely injured and had several splits in his skull. The two men told Bill they were just there for the money. They asked him where his safe was, but unfortunately, the family did not have a safe. I think this probably angered the men, and they just didn't know what to do at this point. They started rummaging through the home looking for anything of value, and they found very little. Bill had absolutely no cash in his wallet, and all they found was about $100 in Haley's wallet, along with several gift cards to local stores. Because if you recall, she had just graduated and probably was gifted these. They tied up Bill in the basement zip-tying his hands and feet, and then also putting rope around him. So what did they tie him to? It was a support beam in the basement. Okay, with like his hands behind his back around the... Exactly. Bill heard one of the men say to the others, if he moves, put two bullets in him. 
So they came with a gun, okay? Yeah, they were armed. Bill was severely injured and he was in and out of consciousness, losing lots of blood. The two men then went upstairs to where the girls and Jennifer were. Hayes put his hand over Jennifer's mouth and gently shook her awake while Commissar Jeske went to the other side of the bed and did the same to 11-year-old Michaela. They moved Michaela to her own room, tied her up to her bed, and then did the same to Haley. They put pillowcases on everyone's heads so they could not see what was going on. These poor girls must have been terrified. Commissar Jeske apparently sat down with Michaela in her bed and talked about school with her and was kind of buddying up to her, gave her a cup of water. It kind of seemed like the men didn't know what to do. They didn't really have a plan B. They went there to get valuables, it seemed, but their search didn't yield anything. And I think they're trying to figure out, you know, what do we do at this point? During their search of the home, they had found one thing of interest. They found a Bank of America checkbook, which revealed a balance of over $20,000 in one of the family's accounts. At this point, they decided they would stay in the home until morning when the banks opened at 9 a.m. While waiting for morning, Hayes was becoming increasingly obsessed with the fact that they were going to leave behind physical evidence. Commissar Jeske allegedly told him, don't worry, fire destroys everything. Around 7.05 a.m., Hayes took cans from the Pettit's garage and drove Jennifer's car to a local gas station. He's actually seen on surveillance, filling up the gas cans and then paying $10 cash before returning to the home. Now, when Hayes got back to the house, Michaela's clothing had been changed, and it became very clear that while Hayes was gone, Commissar Jeske assaulted Michaela. He also took several graphic photographs on his cell phone of the young girl. Hayes seemed surprised by this. I'm not sure if he was angered by it. This might not have been part of his plan, per se. Around 8.30 a.m., Hayes left the home with Jennifer, with Hayes driving Jennifer's minivan, headed to the local bank where the plan was for Jennifer to withdraw $15,000 in cash. And if she did not, then her family would suffer the consequences. Meanwhile, back at the house, Commissar Jeske assaulted Michaela again. And it is unclear if Haley, the older girl, was also sexually assaulted. But I don't think so because later the men would openly admit to the rape of the mother Jennifer and also Michaela. Jennifer arrived at the bank a bit after 9.30. Hayes waited in the car with a hoodie on while Jennifer went inside. Now, you could see the surveillance video from the bank. You could see this all online. She very calmly waited her turn in line. Once it was her turn, she went up to the teller and said she needed to make a withdrawal of $15,000 cash. And of course, it was such a large amount of money that she was told, okay, I need to see your ID. Unfortunately, she did not have her ID. Oh, unfortunate. But But they also told her she had to have her husband present because it was a joint account. Jennifer calmly explained that her family was being held hostage, and unless she got the money, then her family would be hurt. In turn, the bank manager approved the transaction, luckily, and also called 911. Thank God, okay. Yeah, it's now about 9.30 a.m., and you can hear this call online and also in part in that HBO documentary we referenced earlier. While on with the dispatchers, the bank manager watched Jennifer leave, keeping an eye on her, telling the dispatcher everything she could about the situation. Oh, that was good. After receiving the call, police went out to the Pettit house. First, they sent unmarked police cars to just pass the house and, you know, check everything out. They say they didn't see anything strange. In fact, the Pettits didn't have window treatments on their home, so you could see right in and everything looked quiet. But Jennifer's car, the one that was driven to the bank, was in the driveway. Now, the police don't know what's going on. They don't know, was Jennifer part of this? Is she trying to take the money? From her husband, no one knows what's going on. Remember, this is a very safe, quiet town. The police decided that they would set up a perimeter around the home so that no cars could come or go. Now, this is about an hour after the initial 911 call. Meanwhile, things in the house were taking a turn for the worse. When Hayes returned to the home with Jennifer and the $15,000 cash, Commissar Jeske told him that he made a big mistake. He left DNA evidence on one of the girls and therefore had to kill her. He also told Hayes that Bill had died of his injuries. He convinced Hayes that he must kill Jennifer to even the score. This is according to Hayes. Okay. As you could imagine, the two men eventually turn on each other, as we would expect. Of course, finger pointing. So we have to take some of this with a grain of salt because it's one word against another word, and I don't really think either one of them are very trustworthy. Whether it was true or not, he raped Jennifer, then strangled her until she had no breath left in her, and then he raped her again when she was already dead. So... He committed necrophilia. I'm going to ask later about it because, you know, necrophilia or or having sex with a dead person for sexual gratification actually has lots of different, there's a range of different necrophiles, but it would strike me as odd as a first act right there. So, and I know he has a substantial criminal history, which we can chat about towards the end. Stay tuned for that. 
Hayes would later say that he felt betrayed by Commissar Jeske for forcing his hand. In other words, he felt that he killed Jennifer because Commissar Jeske forced him to. He also said he felt betrayed by Jennifer because at this point he looked outside and saw police cars and realized that Jennifer must have told the bank teller, which obviously she did, and that caused the police to be on the scene. Hayes does say at a later time that the rape was not sexually motivated. It was motivated by his anger. Yeah, but that's, you know, you have uh, anger, power control rapists, so that's not surprising either. I think they now are realizing they're not going to get away with this and things are getting pretty desperate. Remember those gas cans? Well, Commissar Jeske and Hayes poured gasoline around the house. So Hayes stayed downstairs, poured gasoline on Jennifer's dead body, while Commissar Jeske went upstairs to the two girls, each still tied to their bed, hands and feet tied to their bed, and poured gasoline on them. Was the older sister alive? They're both still alive. I thought you said that he killed Michaela. He was lying. Sorry, I didn't mention that before, but thanks for asking. Yeah, so Commissar Jeske told Hayes he had killed the girl, but he didn't. Okay. Because Hayes is trying to say, I killed Jennifer because he said this. Okay. There is evidence both girls were alive at this point. Oh, no. Meanwhile, Bill hears one of the men say... Don't worry, this will all be over soon. And he says this is when he gets an adrenaline rush. Bill manages to escape. He was able to get his hands loose. He had spent hours over the night, because this whole ordeal took about seven hours. He spent hours trying to use friction from the pole to break the grips, and he ends up breaking free right before things really get bad. His legs were still tied together, but he hopped up the stairs, the same stairs the men broke in through. Remember, there are stairs in the cellar. So it's interesting. Having the cellar door saves his life, but it also is kind of what started this whole ordeal. He gets outside and he literally rolls to his neighbor's house. Oh, my God. Where are the police? Well, he actually sees police hiding behind trees, but the police don't see him. He makes it to his neighbor's house and starts banging on the garage door. Now, he's unrecognizable. He's lost seven pints of blood. Oh, my He has God. been very severely beaten. And his neighbor, who was his good friend, he's known him for almost 20 years, the guy opens the garage and says, like, hello, can I help you? Do you need help? And he's like, hey, it's me, Bill. So Bill is alive. Bill manages to escape. Meanwhile, the house is engulfed in flames. Now, Megan, police were on the scene for almost 30 minutes watching the house while inside the house, the rape, the murder and the arson were taking place. So as the two men sped away in Pettit's minivan, Commissar Jeske was driving. They crashed into the police cruiser barrier. And at this time, they are apprehended. So they tried to get away. Remember, there was the perimeter set up. They smashed through two police cars. And you could see all of this online. The car was like almost totaled. You know. And I'm sorry, how, say this again, how long the police were, because you said something about them being on scene then, but they weren't on scene. So they were outside. But you're saying when you say they came on scene, does that mean like at the house, at the door? Like, Yeah. So what happened was they got the 911 call and they had unmarked cars kind of looking around, driving around. Then once the perimeter was set up, they have like the command station and trying to figure out what to do. That was in that half an hour leading. So while they were kind of gathering themselves, making their plan, all of this was occurring. So while the police are outside the home, the home goes up in flames. These two guys flee. Now, I have a feeling that they weren't equipped to deal with this kind of crime because they'd never witnessed this kind of crime in their town. And that's going to be one of the, the problems later on. We will definitely talk at length about what happened, what could have been prevented, and was anyone at fault here? So I assume then that everyone, yeah, they all, all the women died, the all women? the girls. Yep. So Jennifer's official cause of death was asphyxiation through strangulation. And Haley and Michaela's official cause of death was smoke inhalation, which indicates that they were alive when the fire was set. And as if that's not heartbreaking enough, I have chills. Burn patterns revealed that Haley was able to break free from her restraints while she was on fire and was able to walk a few feet towards the stairs before she finally collapsed. This is a heartbreaking story. I haven't slept in days. Let's dive into the offender's background a little before we go further with the actual case. Now, we have Joshua Komisar Jeske, who, as mentioned, was 26 at the time of the crime. He had a very troubled past. Now, his mother was just 16 when she had him, and she put him up for adoption when he was two years old. So they actually formed a bit of attachment, which I think is rare. Usually when young mothers put babies up for adoption, it's not after they have them for two years. So 
you know, that's one thing that was going on. And then when you look at his birth family, they had a very long history of mental health issues. Although the specifics are unknown, we know that there was some trouble biologically. When Komisar Jeski was just three years old, his adopted family brought in two more foster children. At this time, he was sexually abused. So was his sister, but he was sexually abused by one of these male children who was a bit older than him. And this went on for several years. And Megan, the details are brutal. I'm not going to get into them, but this he was sexually molested from, I believe, age five on and also very physically abused along with the sexual abuse. He was homeschooled by his very religious parents. He was described as very smart and also very artistic. And again, that HBO documentary does show some of his sketches, which were quite impressive. There are also reports of several head injuries as a child. His adopted family was extremely religious and Komisar Jeski was involved in a church that was very extreme and had a very anti-gay rhetoric, teaching that people who engage in homosexual behavior are evil and sinners. So this really led him getting these messages from his religion that he's fundamentally evil because he engaged in that kind of behavior and activity. So this was very problematic for this young boy. And in 1995, he was committed to a psychiatric hospital for two weeks. He had aggression, depressive symptoms, and he was suicidal. This is a perfect storm. And this is a perfect storm of like biology, psychology, and sociology. Sarjeski was willing to take medication and attend therapy and counseling. However, his parents pulled him out of the hospital because they did not believe in these interventions because of their religion. So instead, they sent him to a religious camp. Sorry, it just makes me think of Andrea Yates. If you remember, she sought intervention as well for her, you know, her mental health and, you know, her husband and the church said, no, this is, you know, a family issue, a church issue. It's so unfortunate. There's also reports that they had exorcisms performed on him. So this is very extreme wow. religious group here. He was eventually excommunicated from his religion, which I think is probably a good thing for him. But it was really his only support system. He eventually joined the reserves. So things seemed to be turning around for him. But after his discharge, that's when he started getting in trouble with the law. He had a string of burglary charges, almost 20 home invasions, but no history of violent crimes at this point. He, what he would do, though, he would break into homes and listen to people breathe while they were sleeping. And he was kind of like a creeper. What do you call these people, Megan? Like he was stalking well, people. A, I mean, it's a voyeur or it can be also, and there's a, a somnophilia is a thing. People who actually have some arousal by watching other people sleep. Yeah, it's unclear um, if there was any sexual motivation, but he was exhibiting very strange behaviors. It was almost as if the home invasions were not financially motivated like many are, although he did take stuff. Some people say it's because he wanted to see how normal people lived and he almost like craved that, that normalcy. Could be it. Yeah, for sure. He also saw drug treatment several times, but always relapsed. In 2002, Komisar Jeski was sentenced to nine years in prison for a burglary. He was out on parole in 2007 when these crimes occurred. It's a pretty quick release. He served five out of nine years. Was it burglary? For a burglary. But, but he, he had, had, had a like string 30, of them. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. He had 20 home invasions prior yeah, to I don't that. think he should have been paroled that early with that history. Yeah, well, wait till you hear this part Ugh. then. There was a transcript of his home invasions and of his sentencing that was never sent to the parole board. So really, he was able to manipulate the system. He came across as a first-time remorseful offender. Oh, and despite God. the fact that these transcripts would have showed these strings of behavior. So this could have been prevented. Now, they let this offender out on parole pretty early because they didn't get the transcript of his what prior What a colossal crimes. mistake. I have to imagine whoever made that mistake, the heads were rolling over there. So I mentioned earlier that Komisar Jeski and Hayes were in the same halfway house together. And they both left together about two months before the home invasion. Hayes also had quite the checkered past. He was also the victim of childhood sexual abuse. He was described as suicidal and depressed for most of his life. He has a previous criminal record as well, mostly burglaries, just like homicide. Did he have violent crimes in his past? He did not have violent crimes either. However, his family described him as other than saying he was manipulative and deceptive, they say he was quite violent to them. He would assault his brothers. He broke one of his brother's ribs. So it seems like there was violence within the family, but he never got prosecuted for any violent crimes. Understood. Now, he had two daughters, and one daughter would actually describe him as a loving father, despite getting into trouble a lot with the law. 
And she eventually became a police officer. Isn't that interesting? But he is described as more bad than good. His family had such bad things to say about him that they were even supportive of a death sentence for him. Wow, I've almost never heard that. Yeah, you could see it again on this HBO documentary. Both brothers are interviewed and you can see the pain when he talks about the way his brother like, brutalized him. It almost seems like normal brother taunting and then taking it one step further. Mm -hmm. Like he burnt his hand once. Like he would just, it was clearly very, very violent. After his most recent prison stint, he was living with his mother and one of his brothers. While living there, he assaulted his brother. And after this fight, tensions were really high in the house and his mother kicked him out of the house. At this point, he went on a drug bender with the hope to kill himself. He ended up locking himself in a hotel room with cocaine and other drugs. Clearly, his situation is becoming very desperate. And this was just a couple of days before the attack. Hayes' family, the mother and brothers, were they seemingly like a tighter-knit family? Did they have familial issues as well? Or, or you couldn't really ga gather that information? It's hard to tell. It seems like he was the black sheep of the family. The mother and the two other sons would spend Christmas together. And almost every time, Stephen was in prison or jail. Okay. So it, it seems like... Everyone else in the family had a closer relationship and he was kind of the odd one out. And did you say he was sexually assaulted or no? He was sexually assaulted as well. Hayes was. Hayes was, but I'm not sure of the details. Okay. So he reconnected with Josh at an AA meeting after he was done with this bender. So he tried to kill himself by going on this drug bender. It didn't work. So he goes to an AA meeting. This is where they started to discuss ways that they can make some quick money. So that was just a little break to give you a background on these guys. But let's go back. If you remember, they crashed into the police, the barricade. police barricade, guns drawn, get out of the car, that they're finally apprehended. Now, Hayes tries to deny harm and wasn't forthcoming at all. However, Komisar Jeski gave essentially a full confession. You can hear this online. His interrogation is so sick. During it, he calls Jennifer mom, like mom was upstairs. He calls Michaela KK the whole time. Remember I said that was like an endearing nickname the family gave her? Totally offensive when he uses it, I'm sure. It was hard to listen to. Even when they first got him out of the car, they, you know, they said, who's in the house? What happened? And he said, there's three women in the house. You know, he and Hayes was kind of like, I don't know what's going on. So Coma Sorgeski from the beginning was kind of like, this is what's going on. We're caught, you know. Yeah, exactly. Both of them offered to plead guilty and accept the sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Is that because the death penalty was on the table? Yep. But guess what, Megan? The prosecution rejected this and they pursued a trial and a death sentence. Wow. Bill is the one who wanted to pursue the death penalty. So I understand he is the sole surviving victim here. And if that's what he wants, I think that's what he should get. And there was a camp of people that said absolutely. But there was this other group of people that said, do we really need to re-victimize girls and this woman by having this long drawn out trial? I'm going to say that if I mean, I, I case by case with death penalty and, you know, because I'm not totally in favor or totally against. But if Bill Pettit wanted to push forward in this instance, that would weigh heavily on the prosecutor. And I think it rightfully should. Yep. And I, that's exactly why I believe the prosecution went forward, because we know prosecutors nine times out of 10, they want to take a plea deal. It's an automatic win. It saves money. It saves time. But I think in this case, everyone just needed to see retribution. There were separate trials for the two men. Not surprisingly, it was really hard to find an impartial jury. This case was huge. It was the most notable case in Connecticut's history, and people were outraged over it. There were some lawyers that spoke about this, and they said that during the voir dire, potential jurors, some of them were saying, like, I'll kill them with my bare hands. Like, they were pissed. And they did not win the motion for change of venue. Oh, wow. That's surprising. Both defense teams motioned to have a change of venue and it was denied for both of them. And the trials were held in nearby New Haven, which was just miles from where the crimes happen. So they're tried separately, which means they can now point fingers at each other. Oh, and they do, Megan. Yeah. So Hayes had his trial first. Some say he had his trial first because he was seen as the mastermind. Others say it's because he was older. You know, everyone has their theories. Who knows? While the trial was underway in 2010, Hayes tried to kill himself. He hid roughly nine doses of clonopin and Thorazine, and he took them all at once, and he was found unresponsive one morning by his team. Remember, he has a long history of being depressed and suicidal, mm -hmm. and he had tried to kill himself just a year before trial. So he was, I think, even on suicide watch, but somehow he was able to pull this off. But despite this, he survived and he was found competent and the trial went right on. Okay. Now, Hayes was fully transparent and admitted to the rape and murder of Jennifer Pettit. And he also admitted to spreading the gasoline. You know, he denied lighting the match. 
He denied ever touching the girls. Either way, October 5th, 2010, Hayes was found guilty of 16 out of 17 counts. Of course, the jury now is tasked with deciding whether or not he should die. Well, that's the second trial in death penalty cases. It's like two trials. On a side note, I always thought it had to be two different juries. Some states make you have a different jury for the guilt phase and the penalty phase. They have the same jury. No, it can be the same jury. Not surprisingly, given, you know, the feel in the town, Stephen Hayes was given the death penalty on November 8th, 2010. Now, Hayes wanted to die. He even asked to be put to death a year before the verdict was given. So I don't think he was upset by this verdict. Komisarjewski's trial followed the next year in 2011. Not surprisingly, he was also found guilty on all counts. Komisarjewski seemed to try to minimize his role, whereas Hayes was very forthcoming, taking responsibility and showing lots of remorse. He offered, Hayes offered quite an apology, not like anyone cared, but you know, Mm -hmm. he at least even if he faked it, at least he faked it. Komisarjewski, he would not admit to sexual assault or rape. He said it was just contact. In other words, he said he just ejaculated on the girl, but there was evidence that there was penetration. He also did admit to performing oral sex on the girl, but he says that he did not sodomize her. He also tried to pin everything on Hayes, despite evidence to the contrary. And I really, you'll, you'll, you could watch this in the documentary, but his defense attorney, I found it really disgusting because the defense attorney says Josh never meant to kill anyone. He didn't walk into the house with the intent to do so. And he actually showed Bill compassion because he gave Bill pillows to sit on while he was tied up and he wiped blood off his face. Like, are you kidding me? I guess that's his, I mean, attempt to humanize. It's just an attempt to like save his life. But yeah, I can see, I found that offensive too. Yeah, it was infuriating. And in fact, I think both men's defense attorneys were really trying to minimize their client's involvement. And I know that's their job, but It's really disgusting to listen to. And I'm curious what you think once you watch the documentary. Mm -hmm. Again, not surprisingly, Joshua Komisarjewski was also given the death penalty on December 9th, 2011. Megan, these trials were so brutal. And the, the photos that were shown that jurors were offered therapeutic services after the trial to help with PTSD. And this was the first time in Connecticut's history where the state paid for that. That speaks volumes in itself. Both Hayes and Komisarjewski were transferred to separate prison facilities in Pennsylvania to serve their sentences. Now, why'd they go to Pennsylvania? Well, some state prison officials say that the transfer was done for safety and security. Who knows? Both men tried to commit suicide. In 2016, after he was transferred, Komisarjewski attempted to commit suicide by hanging himself. And then there were reports of Hayes attempting to commit suicide as well. Now, Hayes is currently incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution Green. It's a supermax prison in Franklin Township, Pennsylvania. And Komisarjewski is at the State Correctional Institution Phoenix in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Remember, both men were sentenced to death. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Did Connecticut abolish the death penalty? <laughs> in 2009, Connecticut tried to abolish the death penalty, but was not successful because playing a large part in this decision was the Pettit murders. Bill and the tragedy was seen as a poster child for why the death penalty needs to stay in place. And then in 2012, the Connecticut House of Representatives voted to get rid of capital punishment, but only for future cases, meaning that these men would still be put to death. However, in 2015, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled all capital punishment to be unconstitutional and every death penalty case in the state was changed to life in prison. So they got commuted to life in prison. Yeah. The men were each resentenced to six consecutive life sentences, followed by another 140 years in prison. Wow, that is quite a turn. I can't imagine Bill Pettit was happy. No. Having to go through all this, it's like yeah. over and over again. The story doesn't end here, though. There have been a few interesting developments. Okay. In 2019, a now 56-year-old Hayes went public as transgendered and is currently undergoing hormone treatment while he's incarcerated. And he claims that he was diagnosed at age 16 with a sexual identity disorder known as gender dysmorphia. So this is a health condition that's recognized by the American Psychiatric Association and the World Health Organization. Now, this really refers to the emotional distress that occurs when a person's gender identity does not match the sex they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. Gender dysmorphia can be treated with hormone therapy, psychotherapy, and gender reaffirming surgery. Do you know what the prison systems have to say about this? I imagine that they're all different, to be honest, Mm -hmm. um, because I I know a little bit about New Jersey and New York, but I have a feeling that this is going to vary from state to state. The DOJ mandates individualized assessment and care for gender dysphoria in all trans prisoners. They also take the stance that prison officials have an obligation statewide 
to assess and treat gender dysphoria just as they would any other medical or mental health conditions. The rationale behind this stance is that prisoners with gender dysphoria should not be forced to suffer during their incarceration and that there can be serious consequences to the health and well-being of transgendered prisoners who are among the most vulnerable population incarcerated in our nation's prisons and jails. So hormone patches are one of a number of treatment options available to federal inmates. But the way we see this working out, of course, is their state differences and each state decides how they want to handle it. So you'll see, you know, like every like every other policy, it's kind of all over the map. What's the Supreme Court said? on Well, it? federal cases are they're reviewed individually by medical staff who determine the most cost efficient treatment. There's been several. Look it up. You'll see there's been several cases that have gone to the Supreme Court about like specific issues regarding, oh, or, you know, like they get very particular on what they can and can't do. Okay. But this is not without controversy. I, I mean, I do understand the controversy here. As a recognized health condition, how do you treat it? Do you treat it like you would treat cancer? I mean, it's it's a little bit different. It also involves mental health. And the courts have weighed in saying that inmates deserve mental health and medical treatment. But the controversy comes in where you have somebody who feels like they've been assigned the wrong gender. So they're taking hormone replacement therapy. But this is an individual who killed this family in cold blood. And there are many people who say he should not get anything he wants, whether that be hormones or an extra piece of bread with a meal. People are pissed that he's getting three warm meals a day and a cot. I mean, you know? I understand that point of view completely. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, this is a hard topic for me, and I, I mm-hmm. wouldn't know exactly. I haven't given this much thought. I don't know where I stand, but I understand the thought yeah. that, you yeah. know, how much should we be willing to give this person who's mm-hmm. perpetrated the absolute worst acts? Yeah. Shouldn't it just be basic medical care, yes. basic food? So I, I understand. Some would say that's basic. That's the issue. Is some people would say that is right. considered basic medical care. And I just feel bad for Dr. Pettit, who, again, it seems like every year there's something else that's being brought up in this case. You know, Stephen Hayes did an interview on a podcast recently. You're kidding. No, I was very surprised to come across it. It's called 15 Minutes With. Okay. And it's a, an individual who does these very short 15-minute interviews with individuals who are incarcerated. I was very interested to hear this because the first episode, he says Stephen Hayes wanted to participate because he wants to do something positive. So I was like, oh, what kind of bullshit is this? You'd be sick if you heard this. He says he's remorseful and he's suicidal and this has wrecked him. And, you know, he wants to apologize to the family. He wasn't thinking and he blamed it on being in the middle of a relapse. He gives advice to people who are headed down, quote unquote, that road. He says it's destroyed him. So he talks a lot about the case. And the reason why he's able to do this is because he is not exercising any of his appeals. Ah, I see. He decided to forego all of his appeals, which is why he can call into this podcast and start talking about the case. He talks about how it was Josh's idea to start the fire. And he claims he was going to leave because he didn't want to do it. And he was just going to pour the gas and not set the fire. He says Josh wore him down. It just sounds like such a desperate attempt at trying to get some sympathy. He also reveals that the reason why Josh targeted Michaela and Jennifer is because his motivation was Michaela. He was attracted to young girls and Commissar Jeske told police it was because of the nice car. Hayes says that's bullshit. He wanted the girl. Oh, okay. Well, you did mention that um, it was noted that he might have um, pedophilia. Yes, exactly. That's possible. So speaking about appeals, very recently... April 13th, 2021, Komo Sorjeski's appeal was rejected. And this is an appeal that was pending for years because of delays associated with both death penalty litigation and, of course, pandemic-related court postponements. Mm -hmm. The judges issued, not surprisingly, a 7-0 decision upholding the convictions against him. Do you want to hear some of the shit that he appealed on? Oh, God. He uh, he appealed. And when Hayes did that interview with the podcast, he kept throwing Komisar Jeske under the bus. And I agree with him on this as he was saying enough is enough. You've done enough to this family. Stop with the appeals. And as much as I don't have respect for Stephen Hayes, I do agree that Joshua Komisar Jeske, he's done enough harm. Let the family move on and stop appealing on this bullshit, pretty mm-hmm. much. He said that the state failed to disclose certain evidence. He noted the state's failure to move the trial at a New Haven to counter pretrial publicity so that therefore he was denied a fair trial. He said his challenges of certain jurors were ignored. This is the worst. He complained about the unconstitutionality of the inhumane strict prison conditions. Now, this is a person who brutalized a whole family and he's complaining about prison conditions. 
There were some other ones about the prosecutors violating his rights by denying him access to certain communications among police officers, some erroneous trial testimony by by an expert who talked about the obscene photos found on his phone. Either way, this guy's never seen the light of day. Now, let's end this on a high note. What is going on with Bill Pettit? Okay. Now, this guy is so strong. For one, he spoke at the funeral five days after the crime with his head pretty much split open, just got out of the hospital, and he really held it together for the most part. Again, you can see footage of that online. Very quickly, donations were pouring in for the family. At first, Dr. Pettit had many small foundations he had Michaela's Miracles, Haley's Hope, and an MS foundation for his wife, Jennifer. Mm-hmm. And then he decided to really centralize it into one foundation. And he created the Pettit Family Foundation, who has a few different missions. They provide help to educate young people, especially in the sciences. They provide support to those with chronic illnesses, and they help to protect those affected by violence. So he's really doing a lot. He never returned to the medical practice. He never stepped foot back in his office. I think he, it was just probably too much for him to go back to his life. They demolished the home in 2008. They turned it into a memorial garden. And with the blessing of his late wife's family, Bill remarried in 2012. Oh, I'm glad to hear yes. that. His wife, Christine, was a f- photographer who volunteered for his foundation. And the couple also have a young son named William. You know, that does give me a little bit of, you know, peace for him. And I'm, I'm really glad that he was able to go on and have a family again. And as far as what he's doing, again, he's not practicing medicine. He is now involved in politics. In 2016, he ran for the House of Representatives for Connecticut's 22nd congressional district under the Republican ticket. He was elective and he currently serves in the House. And while not his sole focus, because he's trying to move on from the murders, the attacks definitely play a part in his legislation. He has supported bills that would create stronger penalties for career criminals. And throughout this whole thing, he's expressed support for the death penalty and outwardly criticizes Connecticut for abolishing the death penalty. Maybe that's why he left his practice, though, because he felt so motivated by this to go into legislation. And, or, yeah, you know, it politics. makes sense. Yeah. All right, Megan, this is going to be a long one, but what theories can help us understand this tragic crime? And as always, I want to point out that theories are ways to help us make sense of things. They are by no means excuses. So they both sound like career criminals to me. And I think of Moffat's life course persistent offenders. This just pops into my head. Terry Moffat had a theory that there are those who are Life course persisters. So from an early age, they start committing antisocial crimes. And this could be because of neurological deficits. Um, she points to a number of possible causes. Like nature that are, and nurture. Yeah, she, she definitely points to both. But so they start with early antisocial behavior that just accumulates over the course of their life and keeps them in a pattern of mm-hmm. career criminal offending. So I think for both of them, I would put them in Moffitt's life. I think they're both life course persisters. And to take that a bit further, do you remember Samson and Lobbs? They pointed out that there's two life events that sometimes can veer people off the trajectory of crime. It could be career and or marriage. marriage. And if you look at both of these, they did not have stable relationships and they never had a stable career. So, you know, that kind of is in line with what you explained. Well, that's because Samson and Lobbs, they were also, yeah. They they were also life course theorists. theorists. So that makes sense to me as well. I mean, when you look at Komisarjevsky, I mean, you have head injuries, you have family history of mental illness, you have the adoption, the sexual abuse, the pedophilia, the substance abuse. I mean, this is really the perfect storm. And so from a young age, probably what happens is biologically and, and because of all the like the head traumas and other things, and we've seen that with a lot of serial offenders. But he probably found himself also in a home where the parents could not deal with that. And so, again, that behavior just is cumulative. And I almost hear a little labeling because, remember, his church made him feel evil because of the homosexuality, which was really just sexual abuse. I think he was labeled in a certain way and stigmatized, although I don't think that's really the driving force. I don't think so either. Yeah, behind his. What about Stephen Hayes? I also, generally speaking, how do we explain that both of these men went from nonviolent crimes to violent crimes? Like, were there warning signs of escalation? I think with Hayes, there was. It seems like there was. And again, a part, but a part of the career criminals, it, they can escalate in their behavior. It does go from, you know, bad to worse. I would also say, remember, sometimes bad, like the birds of a feather flock together. The two of them, when they found each other and they joined, that might have been the escalating force for them. I agree. I don't think either offender would have done this on their own. I would say that probably the the igniter was the two of them meeting and the two of them perpetrating these crimes together and escalating in each other. And then remember, they're both 
almost in this downward spiral in their life. They're relapsing. They can't get a job. They're having trouble with money. They're, I don't even remember if I mentioned, but there was some infidelity going on. And this is all typical with life course persisters yeah. as well and career criminals. So, I mean, this fits theoretically for, for me. Okay. So this is a two-parter. So we like to talk about, did the system get it right? But there's two things I want to talk about here. I want to talk about this idea of, should they have just accepted the pleas? Now, they spent over $7 million on the trials for these men and the family had to sit through grueling testimony and really it was a media circus. Now, both of these men tried to kill themselves. So does giving them the death penalty essentially give them what they want or does it not matter? And do we just pursue what the victim wants, which was to seek the death penalty? Thoughts on that? We can't pursue just what the victim wants. That can never be the soul, but it's going to be a driving force. And especially in a case where the victim is a sole survivor and his family has been murdered, his entire family. So I would say, I think I understand why the prosecutor had to rely very heavily on Bill Pettit's wishes in this regard. We talk about, I mean, we debate the death penalty over and over again. We're whether, not getting into that here, Megan. No, but whether or not... <laughs> I'm surprised that you were surprised that he went through so many appeals. I'm not sure why you're surprised. Of course he was going to do that. I'm not surprised, but after hearing Hayes talk about whether or not he's just being manipulative, when I heard Hayes say, we're never seeing the light of day, what are we doing the appeals for other than to just dig up more shit to hurt the family? And again, I don't give him any credit, but once he said that, I said, all right, you know what? Because the way Hayes says it is, I can't do anything at this point. Let me do this one thing that at least like feels like I'm doing something it's right. One redeeming factor is what you're saying. And, and the, uh, you know, the other offender doesn't seem to have that. I mean, the criminal justice system, did it get it right? Well, they're yeah. serving life in prison. So yeah. yes, it got it right. Was the death penalty the appropriate call? Maybe. I would say that I would probably lean towards yes. Both offenders wanted it, though. So it almost seems like don't give these scumbags what they want. I know we can't think of it like that, but, you know, they kept trying to kill themselves. So it's almost like this weird paradox, like they wanted to die and the system put them on suicide watch. Like you can't kill yourself, but I can kill you. It's like a very it's it just is. An interesting. Yeah. It's almost hypocritical to have the state Say, you can't kill yourself. I'm going to put you on suicide watch, but it's only because I want to kill you. Obviously, the death penalty was taken off the table, so it's not relevant, but it's still an interesting thought. Now, the last thing here, the police got a lot of flack for not responding sooner, specifically from Jennifer's family and some community members who really criticized the way the case was handled. Why wasn't Jennifer kept at the bank? Why was she allowed to leave? And I think even more important, why weren't her and Hayes apprehended at the bank or on the way home from the bank? At some point, some police officers off the record, it's a small town, say that they heard screaming when they approached the house. So there's people that say they didn't enter quickly enough. Perhaps the girls or at least one of them could have been saved if they entered the house earlier, especially once they learned during the trial that the girls were alive when the house was set on fire. I'm curious what you think. I th I understand the police. It was an unknown threat, potential hostage situation. But the criticism is it seemed like the police were more concerned with apprehending the perpetrators and saving the lives of the victims. But is that their job? Like, what should the police have done? The police have to assess the threat. And so I really couldn't say what they should have done. I have a feeling that they should have gone in sooner. I mean, yeah. I think if they heard screams, if they knew there was something going down the house, then they should have gone in sooner. I also have a feeling, like I said earlier, I have a feeling they didn't know how to handle the situation because this was a community where nothing like this had ever happened and they yeah. probably had no violent crime, no hostage. Yeah. So, I mean, you do have to assess the threat and how to go in. Because also remember, if they charge it, they don't know what... If they don't know how many perps are in there. They don't know if there's guns, bombs. They don't know. I don't know if they're going to turn and shoot everyone yeah. once they enter or get shot at. So, so one of the responses was that if Jennifer said that her family was going to be harmed by the police entering, it could have set off the guys too. Whereas if it was a hostage situation, they could have negotiated something. I don't think the police were wrong because for all they know, they could have been causing the death of the family by going in before knowing what they were going into. They might have. I don't think they were wrong, but I don't think they were right. I have a sneaking suspicion they could have saved some of the family members, yeah. um, but I, I wouldn't like completely fault them without knowing a lot more. Yeah, I think when something like this happens, you just want, uh, obviously it's clear who's at fault. Right. There's there's no doubt in our minds that Komisar Jeski and Hayes are the ones at fault. But I think the family is just trying to understand how this couldn't have been stopped. Um, days after the crime, the governor of Connecticut called for stricter monitoring of paroled burglars and then banned the parole of violent offenders. So I know you talk about this in your policy analysis class is how sometimes you have a situation and then 
The problem is you kind of cast the net too far by, you know, you want to do something, but now you're also hindering the successful reentry of people that perhaps deserve a second chance. It's a knee-jerk reaction, and that's never good policy. And I understand the sentiment of that policy, as most of them are. But yeah, you don't want to throw a blanket and capture everyone. That's not smart policy in our field. So I would say craft a policy in response to a tragic event. It's usually not going to be a good one because it hasn't been thought out and well-planned and based on evidence. It's based on emotion. Yeah, it's based on emotion. Megan, I can go on for hours. There's so much to talk about with this case, but... Yeah, Amy, I know you could go on forever with this case. Um, Thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. I look forward to seeing... I don't know, actually. I look forward to seeing the documentary, but I don't now that I know the details. All right, and before we close out today, Megan, we have one question to get to from a supporter. So Rita wants to know why there are so few solo female serial killers. And along with that, she wants to know, can you name any that are not attached to a man? Now, I find that very interesting. And Rita's very smart because she also comments, is it possible that women are just better at getting away with it? So what do you think about this, Megan? I know you have tons of opinion as this is your area of expertise. Well, approximately 15% of serial killers are females to begin with. So that number is small, but it's parallel to the numbers of females who are committing violent crimes in comparison to men in general. So 15% is still a healthy number. Let's put it that way. There are a number of solo female serial killers. Usually those types of killers kill for utility. They often will poison or kill family members, such as children, and it's usually to serve, you know, an insurance benefit of some nature. Uh, one of those that comes to mind is Nanny Doss. She killed a number of her family members. Another solo female killer was Dorothea Puente. And she was a landlady who actually killed her tenants and then took their social security checks. So, yes, there are any number of female solo serial killers as well. When they kill in a partner, a partnership or in a team, in a group, it's usually um, at the behest of a male, um, but not always. That's just the way it usually goes when they're in a, in a, a duo situation. Um, and when they are solo, again, they are pretty much committing these crimes for utilitarian purposes. And keep your ears open for more information on our newest podcast that we are currently working on, which focuses exclusively on serial killers. You will not want to miss this one. I hope that answers your question. Um, Thank you so much, everyone. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include USA Today, HBO documentary Cheshire Murders, New York Times, CNN, Connecticut House GOP, Hartford Current, the Pettit Family Foundation, the New Haven Register, and People Magazine. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.